Section 5 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumont. Section 5. The fresh wind, which often rises just at sunset, was already rustling in the leaves. Long shadows darkened the course of the yawn and stretched across the plain. The water, slightly troubled, reflected a confused outline of its bank and the clouded blue of the sky. The three gentlemen stopped at the end of the terrace and gazed into the already fading distance. A black spot, which they had just observed in the middle of the river, caught a gleam of light in passing a low meadow between two hills, and for a moment took shape as a barge, then was lost again and could not be distinguished from the water. Another moment and it reappeared more distinctly. It was indeed a barge, and now the horse could be seen towing it against the current. Again it was lost at a bend of the river shaded by willows, and they had to resign themselves to incertitude for several minutes. Then a white handkerchief was waved on the prow of the boat, and Monsieur de Lamotte uttered a joyful exclamation. "'It is indeed they,' he cried. "'Do you see them, Monsieur Le Cure? I see my boy. He's waving the handkerchief, and his mother is with him. But I think there is a third person. Yes, there is a man, is there not? Look well.' "'Indeed,' said the cure. "'If my bad sight does not deceive me, I should say there was someone seated near the rudder. But it looks like a child. Probably someone from the neighborhood who has profited by the chance of a lift home.' The boat was advancing rapidly. They could now hear the cracking of the whip with which the servant urged on the tow-horse, and now it stopped at an easy landing-place barely fifty paces from the terrace. Madame de Lamotte landed with her son and the stranger, and her husband descended from the terrace to meet her. Long before he arrived at the garden gate, his son's arms were around his neck. "'Are you quite well, Edouard?' "'Oh, yes, perfectly.' "'And your mother?' "'Quite well, too. She is behind and in as great a hurry to meet you as I am, but she can't run as I do, and you must go halfway.' "'Whom have you brought with you?' "'A gentleman from Paris.' "'From Paris?' "'Yes, a Monsieur de Rue, but Mamma will tell you all about that. Here she is.' The cure and the monk arrived just as Monsieur de Lamotte folded his wife in his arms. Although she had passed her fortieth year, she was still beautiful enough to justify her husband's eulogism. A moderate plumpness had preserved the freshness and softness of her skin. Her smile was charming, and her large blue eyes expressed both gentleness and goodness. Seen beside this smiling and serene countenance, the appearance of the stranger was downright repulsive, and Monsieur de Lamotte could hardly repress a start of disagreeable surprise at the pitiful and sordid aspect of this diminutive person who stood apart, looking overwhelmed by conscious inferiority. He was still more astonished when he saw his son taken by the hand with friendly kindness, and heard him say, "'Will you come with me, my friend? We will follow my father and mother.' Madame de Lamotte, having greeted the cure, looked at the monk who was a stranger to her. A word or two explained matters, and she took her husband's arm, declining to answer any questions until she reached the loose, and laughing at his curiosity. Pierre Etienne de Saint-Faust de Lamotte, one of the king's equerries, seigneur of the Grange Flandre, Valperfond, etc., had married Marie-Francois Perrier in 1760. Their fortune resembled many others of that period. It was more nominal than actual, more showy than solid. Not that the husband and wife had any cause for self-reproach, or that their estates had suffered from dissipation. 
unstained by the corrupt manners of the period, their union had been a model of sincere affection, of domestic virtue, and mutual confidence. Marie-Francois was quite beautiful enough to have made a sensation in society, but she renounced it of her own accord in order to devote herself to the duties of a wife and mother. The only serious grief she and her husband had experienced was the loss of two young children. Edouard, though delicate from his birth, had nevertheless passed the trying years of infancy and early adolescence. He was then nearly fourteen. With a sweet and rather effeminate expression, blue eyes and a pleasant smile, he was a striking likeness of his mother. His father's affection exaggerated the dangers which threatened the boy, and in his eyes the slightest indisposition became a serious malady. His mother shared these fears, and in consequence of this anxiety, Edward's education had been much neglected. He had been brought up at buisson Souf and allowed to run wild from morning till night, like a young fawn, exercising the vigor and activity of its limbs. He had still the simplicity and general ignorance of a child of nine or ten. The necessity of appearing at court and suitably defraying the expense of his office had made great inroads on Monsieur de Lamont's fortune. He had of late lived at buisson Souf in the most complete retirement, but notwithstanding this too long deferred attention to his affairs, his property was ruining him, for the place required a large expenditure and absorbed a large amount of his income without making any tangible return. He had always hesitated to dispose of the estate on account of its associations. It was there he had met, courted, and married his beloved wife, there that the happy days of their youth had been spent, there that they had both wished to grow old together. Such was the family to which accident had now introduced Derue. The unfavorable impression made on Monsieur de Lamotte had not passed unperceived by him, but being quite accustomed to the instinctive repugnance which his first appearance generally inspired, Derue had made a successful study of how to combat and efface this antagonistic feeling and replace it by confidence, using different means according to the persons he had to deal with. He understood at once that vulgar methods would be useless with Monsieur de Lamotte, whose appearance and manners indicated both the man of the world and the man of intelligence, and also he had to consider the two priests, who were both observing him attentively. Fearing a false step, he assumed the most simple and insignificant deportment he could, knowing that sooner or later a third person would rehabilitate him in the opinion of those present. Nor did he wait long. Arrived at the drawing-room, Monsieur de Lamotte requested the company to be seated. Derue acknowledged the courtesy with a bow, and there was a moment of silence, while Edouard and his mother looked at each other and smiled. Their silence was broken by Madame de Lamotte. "'Dear Pierre,' she said, "'you are surprised to see us accompanied by a stranger. But when you hear what he has done for us, you will thank me for having induced him to return here with us.' "'Allow me,' interrupted Derue, "'allow me to tell you what happened. The gratitude which Madame imagines she owes me causes her to exaggerate a small service which anybody would have been delighted to render. No, monsieur, let me tell it. Let mamma tell the story, said Edouard. What is it, then? What happened? said monsieur de Lamotte. I am quite ashamed, answered Derue, but I obey your wishes, madame. Yes, replied madame de Lamotte. Keep your seat. I wish it. Imagine, Pierre, just six days ago, an accident happened to Edouard and me which might have had serious consequences. And you never wrote to me, Marie? I should only have made you nervous, and to no purpose. I had some business in one of the most crowded parts of Paris. I took a chair, and Edouard walked beside me. In the Rue Beaubourg we were suddenly surrounded by a mob of low people who were quarrelling. 
Carriages stopped the way, and the horses of one of these took fright in the confusion and uproar and bolted, in spite of the coachman's endeavors to keep him in hand. It was a horrible tumult, and I tried to get out of the chair, but at that moment the chairmen were both knocked down, and I fell. It is a miracle I was not crushed. I was dragged insensible from under the horse's feet and carried into the house before which all this took place. There, sheltered in a shop and safe from the crowd which encumbered the doorway, I recovered my senses, thanks to the assistance of Monsieur Derue, who lives there. But that is not all. When I recovered, I could not walk. I had been so shaken by the fright, the fall, and the danger I had occurred, and I had to accept his offer of finding me another chair when the crowd should disperse, and meanwhile to take shelter in his rooms with his wife, who showed me the kindest attention. Monsieur, said Monsieur de Lamotte, rising, but his wife stopped him. Wait a moment. I have not finished yet. Monsieur Derue came back in an hour, and I was then feeling better. But before, I left I was stupid enough to say that I had been robbed in the confusion. My diamond earrings, which had belonged to my mother, were gone. You cannot imagine the trouble Monsieur Derue took to discover the thief, and all the appeals he made to the police. I was really ashamed. Although Monsieur de Lamotte did not yet understand what motive, other than gratitude, had induced his wife to bring the stranger home with her, he again rose from his seat, and going to Derue, held out his hand. "'I understand now the attachment my son shows for you. You are wrong in trying to lessen your good deed in order to escape from our gratitude, Monsieur Derue.' "'Monsieur Derue?' inquired the monk. "'Do you know the name, my father?' asked Madame de Lamotte eagerly. "'Edouard had already told me,' said the monk, approaching Derue. "'You live in the Rue Bouburg, and you are Monsieur Derue, formerly a retail grocer?' The same, my brother. Should you require a reference, I can give it. Chance, madame, has made you acquainted with a man whose reputation for piety and honor is well established. He will permit me to add my praises to yours. Indeed, I do not know how I deserve such honor. I am Brother Marchois of the Camaldulian order. You see that I know you well. The monk then proceeded to explain that his community had confided their affairs to Derues' honesty he undertaking to dispose of the articles manufactured by the monks in their retreat. He then recounted a number of good actions and of marks of piety, which were heard with pleasure and admiration by those present. Derues received this cloud of incense with an appearance of sincere modesty and humility, which would have deceived the most skilful physiognomist. When the eulogistic warmth of the good brother began to slacken, it was already nearly dark, and the two priests had barely time to regain their presbytery without incurring the risk of breaking their necks in the rough road which led to it. They departed at once, and a room was got ready for Derues. "'Tomorrow,' said Madame de Lamotte as they separated, "'you can discuss with my husband the business on which you came. Tomorrow, or another day, for I beg that you will make yourself at home here, and the longer you will stay the better it will please us.' The night was a sleepless one for Derues, whose brain was occupied by a confusion of criminal plans. The chance which had caused his acquaintance with Madame de Lamotte, and even more the accident of Brother Marchois appearing in the nick of time, to enlarge upon the praises which gave him so excellent a character, seemed like favorable omens not to be neglected. He began to imagine fresh villainies, to outline an unheard-of crime, which as yet he could not definitely trace out. But anyhow, there would be plunder to seize and blood to spill, and the spirit of murder excited and kept him awake, just as remorse might have troubled the repose of another. Meanwhile, Madame de Lamotte, having retired with her husband, was saying to the latter, "'Well, now, 
"'What do you think of my protégé, or rather, of the protector which heaven sent me?' "'I think that physiognomy is often very deceptive, for I should have been quite willing to hang him on the strength of his. It is true that his appearance is not attractive, and it led me into a foolish mistake which I quickly regretted. When I recovered consciousness and saw him attending on me, much worse and more carelessly dressed than he is today. You are frightened? No, not exactly, but I thought I must be indebted to a man of the lowest class, to some poor fellow who was really starving, and my first effort at gratitude was to offer him a piece of gold. Did he refuse it? No, he accepted it for the poor of the parish. Then he told me his name, Cyrano de Rue de Bury, and told me that the shop and the goods it contained were his own property, and that he occupied an apartment in the house. I floundered in excuses, but he replied that he blessed the mistake inasmuch as it would enable him to relieve some unfortunate people. I was so touched with his goodness that I offered him a second piece of gold. You are quite right, my dear, but what induced you to bring him to Bisson? I should have gone to see and thank him the first time I went to Paris, and meanwhile a letter would have been sufficient. Did he carry his complacence and interest so far as to offer you his escort? Ah, I see you cannot get over your first impression. Honestly, is it not so? Indeed, exclaimed Monsieur de Lamont, laughing heartily. It is truly unlucky for a decent man to have such a face as that. He ought to give Providence no rest until he obtains the gift of another countenance. Always these prejudices. It is not the poor man's fault that he was born like that. Well, you said something about business we were to discuss together. What is it? I believe he can help us to obtain the money we are in want of. And who told him that we wanted any? I did. You? Come, it certainly seems that this gentleman is to be a family friend. And pray, what induced you to confide in him to this extent? You would have known by now if you did not interrupt. Let me tell you all in order. The day after my accident, I went out with Edward about midday, and I went to again express my gratitude for his kindness. I was received by Madame de Rue, who told me her husband was out, and that he had gone to my hotel to inquire after me and my son, and also to see if anything had been heard of my stolen earrings. She appeared a simple and very ordinary sort of person, and she begged me to sit down and wait for her husband. I thought it would be uncivil not to do so, and Monsieur de Rue appeared in about two hours. The first thing he did, after having saluted me and inquired most particularly after my health, was to ask for his children— two charming little things, fresh and rosy, whom he covered with kisses. We talked about indifferent matters. Then he offered me his services, placed himself at my disposal, and begged me to spare neither his time nor his trouble. I then told him what had brought me to Paris, and also the disappointments I had encountered, for of all the people I had seen, not one had given me a favorable answer. He said that he might possibly be of some use to me, and the very next day told me that he had seen a capitalist but could do nothing without more precise information. Then I thought it might be better to bring him here, so that he might talk matters over with you. When I first asked him, he refused altogether, and only yielded to my earnest entreaties and Edward's. This is the history, dear, of the circumstances under which I made Monsieur Derue's acquaintance. I hope you do not think I have acted foolishly. Very well, said Monsieur de Lamotte. I will talk to him tomorrow, and in any case I promise you I will be civil to him. I will not forget that he has been useful to you. With which promise the conversation came to a close. Skilled in assuming any kind of mask and in playing every sort of part, Derue did not find it difficult to overcome Monsieur de Lamotte's prejudices, 
and in order to obtain the goodwill of the father he made a skilful use of the friendship which the son had formed with him. One can hardly think that he already meditated the crime which he carried out later. One prefers to believe that these atrocious plots were not invented so long beforehand. But he was already a prey to the idea, and nothing henceforth could turn him from it. By what route he should arrive at the distant goal which his greed foresaw, he knew not as yet. But he had said to himself, One day this property shall be mine. It was the death warrant of those who owned it. We have no details, no information as to Derue's first visit to Bissonsoff, but when he departed he had obtained the complete confidence of the family, and a regular correspondence was carried on between him and the Lamotts. It was thus that he was able to exercise his talent of forgery, and succeeded in imitating the writing of this unfortunate lady, so as to be able even to deceive her husband. Several months passed, and none of the hopes which Derue had inspired were realized. A loan was always on the point of being arranged, and regularly failed because of some unforeseen circumstance. These pretended negotiations were managed by Derue with so much skill and cunning that instead of being suspected, he was pitied for having so much useless trouble. Meanwhile, Monsieur de Lamotte's money difficulties increased, and the sale of Bizonsoff became inevitable. Derue offered himself as a purchaser, and actually acquired the property by private contract dated December 1775. It was agreed between the parties that the purchase money of 130,000 livres should not be paid until 1776, in order to allow Derue to collect the various sums at his disposal. It was an important purchase which, he said, he only made on account of his interest in Monsieur de Lamotte, and his wish to put an end to the latter's difficulties. But when the period agreed on arrived, towards the middle of 1776, Derue found it impossible to pay. It is certain that he never meant to do so, and a special peculiarity of his dismal story is the avarice of the man, the passion for money which overruled all his actions, and occasionally caused him to neglect necessary prudence. Enriched by three bankruptcies, by continual thefts, by usury, the gold he acquired promptly seemed to disappear. He stuck at nothing to obtain it, and once in his grasp, he never let it go again. Frequently he risked the loss of his character for honest dealing rather than relinquish a fraction of his wealth. According to many credible people, it was generally believed by his contemporaries that this monster possessed treasures which he had buried in the ground, the hiding place of which no one knew, not even his wife. Perhaps it is only a vague and unfounded rumor which should be rejected, or is it? Perhaps a truth which failed to reveal itself? It would be strange if after the lapse of half a century the hiding place were to open and give up the fruit of his rapine. Who knows whether some of this treasure, accidentally discovered, may not have founded fortune whose origin is unknown, even to their possessors. Although it was of the utmost importance not to arouse Monsieur de Lamotte's suspicions just at the moment when he ought to be paying him so large a sum, Derue was actually at this time being sued by his creditors. But in those days ordinary lawsuits had no publicity. They struggled and died between the magistrates and advocates without causing any sound. In order to escape the arrest and detention with which he was threatened, he took refuge at Bizonsouf with his family and remained there from Whitsuntide till the end of November. After being treated all this time as a friend, Derue departed for Paris, in order, he said, to receive an inheritance which would enable him to pay the required purchase money. This pretended inheritance was that of one of his wife's relations, Monsieur Despain's Duplessis, who had been murdered in his country house near Beauvais. 
it has been strongly suspected that Derue was guilty of this crime. There are, however, no positive proofs, and we prefer only to class it as a simple possibility. Derue had made formal promises to Monsieur de Lamotte, and it was no longer possible for him to elude them. Either the payment must now be made, or the contract annulled. A new correspondence began between the creditors and the debtor. Friendly letters were exchanged, full of protestations on one side and confidence on the other. But all Derue's skill could only obtain a delay of a few months. At length Monsieur de Lamotte, unable to leave Bizonsoff himself, on account of important business which required his presence, gave his wife a power of attorney, consented to another separation, and sent her to Paris, accompanied by Edouard, and, as if to hasten their misfortunes, sent notice of their coming to the expectant murderer. End of section 5